Are you looking to add more excitement and intrigue to your Dungeons & Dragons games? Tired of those in-between moments of twiddling your thumbs waiting for your turn to come around again? Well, fret no more. The newly developed Simulacrum lockpicking game is here to make your game nights even more dynamic and enjoyable. The Simulacrum is a magnetic lockpicking puzzle game with 16 possible combinations and comes with 8 lockpicks that are double-sided. You insert a lockpick, then deduce the right combination through tactile and auditory feedback as the magnets are attracted and repelled across four locking pins. You aren't into Dungeons & Dragons? No problem! The Simulacrum can satisfy the adventurous minds of those who are just into lockpicking challenges in general. I have personally played with the Simulacrum and found it to be an awesome way to sharpen my problem-solving and lockpicking skills. The level of difficulty is perfect. This fantastic new product is now available from Temporal Travels and can be purchased at temporaltravels.etsy.com. That's T-E-M-P-O-R-A-L travels.etsy.com. Order one for yourself or a friend today. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Holidays After Dark, the podcast that unmasks all the weird, unusual sides of the mainstream holidays we all know and some of us love. I'm your host, Kristen. As it always does, the Christmas season is flying by faster than I can say Happy Holidays. This time of year, I always wish time would just slow down a bit, especially on the days when I have free time to enjoy Christmas-related activities. Beforehand every year, I always think about the fact that I start recognizing the holiday season as early as November 1st, and initially I always think, hmm, two solid months of celebrating is quite a long time, that'll be sufficient. But then inevitably I get sucked into the time warp that is November and December, and before I know it, it's January and I'm back to the long period of waiting. But not to be too negative, I've certainly been partaking in many festivities and thoroughly enjoying them. I've gone to a Christmas tree display, looked at tons of Christmas lights, made the annual gingerbread house with my best friend, decorated some cookies, and already watched more Christmas movies than I can count. And speaking of Christmas movies, one of my all-time favorites, which I've already watched about one and a half times in the past couple weeks, depicts a character that is a true staple of the North Pole and of this time of year in general. Of course, I'm talking about the movie Elf. Would we even have Christmas without elves? We certainly wouldn't have all those toys for Santa to deliver if it wasn't for their hard work all year long. Over time, elves have been depicted in a myriad of ways, from unusually short to human size, evil and annoying to kind and warm-hearted, they have made an impact on Christmas-loving hearts and minds of all kinds. So how did elves get to be associated with Christmas? Why did they and Santa decide to join forces to bring joy to children around the world? And why do we love elves like Buddy so much we just can't stop making movies about them? Let's fully embrace elf culture and uncover these mysteries. The English word elf derives from the Alfar from ancient Norse mythology. According to Mental Floss, these folkloric figures predate the classic Christmas characters by several hundred years. 
Although the Alfar are often cited as history's first elves, they varied significantly from the magical fellows we know of today. They didn't build shoes or toys or wear pointy hats. These Nordic elves weren't even necessarily short, as we depict them in modern times. These elves were also known as hidden folk and were believed to occupy the unseen realm between worlds. Beyond that, there wasn't a solid set of characteristics defining the creatures across myths. The Nordic people probably pictured them looking similar to regular humans. These legends of human-like creatures that lived just out of sight in the shadows of our world soon spread through pre-Christian Europe. In Scotland, there was the belief in brownies, tiny beings who would either do your chores or make your house messier depending on their mood. Similar stories told of the kobolds in Germany and the tomta in Sweden. In the story The Elves and the Shoemaker, the brothers Grimm paint these stereotypically mischievous creatures in a positive light. The fairy tale from 1812 follows a poor cobbler struggling to finish his work before Christmas. His business is eventually saved by the kind elves who visit his shop at night and make his shoes for him while he sleeps. Though Santa doesn't make an appearance, this story may be the first depiction in pop culture of elves in a workshop during the holiday season. Not long after this tale came the publication of one of the most influential poems about the modern Christmas myth. The 1823 work A Visit from St. Nicholas, or Twas the Night Before Christmas as it's more commonly known, helped shape the image of Santa Claus and the tradition of gift-giving on Christmas. This poem also refers to St. Nicholas as a jolly old elf, a line that tied the magical beings to the holiday directly for the first time. More than 30 years later, Little Women author Louisa May Alcott wrote a short story collection titled Christmas Elves. While some credit her with the invention of the Santa's Helper's legend, this claim is unproven, as the collection was never published and the manuscript was lost to time, which means present-day scholars know little about it beyond its title. As Mental Floss goes on to mention, an 1857 poem published in Harper's Weekly likely did more to solidify the image of Christmas elves as we know them today. Titled The Wonders of Santa Claus, it tells of a team of elves, as the story goes, all working all their might to make a million of pretty things, cakes, sugar plums, and toys, to fill the stockings, hung up, you know, by the little girls and boys. By the early 20th century, the concept of hardworking Christmas elves was mainstream enough to be reproduced by Norman Rockwell and Walt Disney. For kids and adults today, Christmas elves are as recognizable as Santa Claus himself. They're often dressed in fur-trimmed costumes with pointy hats and gold-buckled belts, a look largely popularized by Rankin Bass's Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, which I discussed the reindeer elements of in a previous episode. These days, elves are depicted in pretty much any medium you can think of this time of year and have become a true Christmas icon symbolizing mischief, humor, and hard work for all to admire. One topic regarding elves that seems to have a great deal of online debate surrounding it is whether or not Santa Claus himself is an elf. In some tellings of the legend, he is described as the head elf and serves as a supervisor of all the toy-building elves in the North Pole. 
In other depictions, such as in the film The Santa Claus starring Tim Allen, he is shown as a normal human who acquires magical powers in order to accomplish the bearded man's duties. In the poem Toys the Night Before Christmas that I mentioned earlier, original illustrations showed him as extremely elf-like. He is very short in stature and is described as a little driver with a miniature sleigh and tiny reindeer. So why did society, over time, transform him into a normal human-sized being who likely isn't even an elf at all? I think the most likely explanation is for practicality and relatability. From a practical standpoint, children can't sit on the lap of a super tiny elf. This practice never would have come into existence if we didn't make Santa about six feet tall. After all, crouching down to talk to a man who is the size of a garden gnome just doesn't have the same feel to it. Also, I feel explaining Santa's duties are easier and more realistic when told through the lens of someone who is of standard height. He has to carry around a huge sack of toys, take them down the chimney, and fill mantle-height stockings, all of which require height and strength. For us humans, Santa also feels a little more relatable when we think of him as simply a really lucky man who was given some special powers and the keys to the most amazing job in the world. Depicting him as a human focuses in on the feeling that he is the world's friendly grandfather, with his adoring and charming human wife, Mrs. Claus. They are the grandparents everyone wants and needs. Whether or not Santa is actually biologically an elf is kind of irrelevant when it really comes down to it. In the end, he shares many of the same duties, lives in the same location, and even dresses similarly to many elves. Elf or not, he brings happiness to all and is unmatched in the magical wonder that surrounds him. Santa, popular culture has blessed us with many other wonderful elf characters who we celebrate this time of year. My last episode largely focused on the story of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and the classic TV movie that brought the story to life. While that episode focused on the famous deer himself, Rudolph's friend, Hermie the Elf, is one of the most beloved characters from the film. Hermie is one of Santa's elves, but unlike the rest of them, he does not enjoy making toys. Instead, he hopes to pursue a career as a dentist. Because of this desire, he is relentlessly teased by the other elves and Santa Claus, much like how Rudolph is teased for having a glowing red nose. The boss elf in charge also singles him out over and over and criticizes him for his dentistry dreams. After being threatened with the loss of his job for poor performance and not fitting in, Hermie quits and runs away from Santa's workshop. He soon meets Rudolph, and they decide to run away together, barely escaping a dangerous run-in with the abominable snow monster. They soon meet Yukon Cornelius, an Arctic prospector who invites them to join him on his search for silver and gold. They then find themselves being pursued by the snow monster once again. They eventually escape on a piece of floating iceberg, which drifts them to the island of misfit toys, which is a sanctuary for defective and unwanted toys. They are granted permission to sleep there for the night once they promise to tell Santa about the forgotten toys and find homes for them. Once Hermie and Yukon fall asleep, Rudolph gets up and leaves them, believing everyone is still in danger due to his red nose attracting the snow monster. When they realize he is gone, Hermie and Yukon search for him and eventually arrive in Christmastown. 
Sam, the local town snowman, warns them of Rudolph's fight against the beast, and they rush to his cave to save the young deer and his family. Hermie lures the snow monster out of the cave, where Yukon then knocks him unconscious with a rock, allowing Hermie time to extract all his teeth. Yukon then pushes him into a deep gorge, but ends up tumbling over the edge with the monster. When there is no sign of him, Hermie and Rudolph return to Christmastown with heavy hearts about losing Yukon. When the misfits return home, the other citizens, including Santa, realize how harshly they had been to them. Rudolph and Hermie are greeted with open arms, and the boss elf gives Hermie permission to open a dentist's office in the North Pole the week after Christmas. And, of course, we all know the victory Rudolph received. He got the honor of leading Santa's sleigh. Throughout this story, Hermie is the subdued, unsung hero who in many ways is basically the human version of Rudolph. Even though he faces harsh discrimination, judgment, and bullying, Hermie stays true to his passions and desires and doesn't let others' bad behavior keep him from being a great person and an even better friend. It's a perfect example of taking the high road, celebrating your differences, and rejoicing in the fact that fitting in is boring. Be yourself no matter what, and soon those around you will love you too. As I mentioned earlier in the episode, Buddy the Elf from the beloved film simply titled Elf, starring Will Ferrell, is without a doubt one of the most iconic depictions of Santa's helpers in the past few decades. Buddy the Elf is especially unique, because he isn't actually an elf at all. Or is he? Well, technically he's a human raised by elves, but I definitely think this gives him enough street cred to be an honorable elf. Buddy was adopted by the elves and Santa when he was just a baby in an orphanage and crawled into Santa's sack of toys one Christmas Eve. Despite Buddy being accepted by the other elves, he is uncomfortably larger than them and has a hard time doing things like showering and sitting in a desk due to his size. Also, his toy-making skills are a bit inferior, and he is unable to keep up with the elves' high quotas. Sadly, he is demoted to toy tester instead of toy maker, and one day while working, he overhears a conversation in which one of the elves mentions that Buddy is a human. Papa Elf ends up finally telling Buddy the story of his adoption, triggering Buddy to set out on a long journey to New York City to find his birth father, who he horrifyingly discovers is on Santa's naughty list. When he arrives in New York City, Buddy charmingly fails to understand several aspects and cultural norms of the human world. He walks right out in front of multiple yellow cabs, eats discarded gum stuck to a handrail, sprays perfume directly into his mouth after mistaking it for fruit spray, and proves he has absolutely no idea how to use an escalator. Once Buddy tracks down his father, Walter Hobbs, it is a tumultuous relationship for much of the film, with the curmudgeonly Walter not being thrilled with Buddy's sudden appearance or his over-the-top holiday celebration ideas. Throughout the film, Buddy operates with such an innocently positive mindset that it makes him extremely hard not to love. He defends his human brother, Michael, in an astonishing snowball fight against the school bullies and falls in love with department store worker Jovi upon seeing her keenly decorating a Christmas tree. 
When a fake Santa arrives at the department store to greet the children, Buddy calls him out as not being the real Santa, and a fist fight ensues, wrecking the store. All the while, Buddy simply believes he is doing the right thing by not allowing the children to be blatantly lied to by this imposter. Toward the end of the film, Buddy encounters famous children's book author Miles Finch, who Walter is having an incredibly important Christmas Eve meeting with. Mistaking Miles for an elf due to his shorter stature, Buddy calls him an angry elf, which sends Miles over the edge, attacking Buddy and then storming out of the meeting. Walter angrily yells at Buddy and tells him to get out of his life, so Buddy runs off into the night alone after writing a goodbye note to his new family. Later, Michael finds the note, gets concerned, and goes to tell his father about Buddy's disappearance. When Michael points out that his father seems to care more about his job than his family, Walter has a change of heart and leaves his meeting to help Michael find Buddy. Buddy, while lamenting his situation, sees Santa's sleigh crash in Central Park because the last bit of Christmas cheer that was left in the world has dissipated and is no longer strong enough to power the sleigh. After getting an idea, Michael opens Santa's list and reads it on national television so that the people of New York will believe in him again and power the sleigh. Jovi, who sees the TV broadcast, comes to the park to lead a Christmas carol sing-along and increase the holiday spirit even more. After all, as Buddy always says, the best way to spread Christmas cheer is singing loud for all to hear. As seen in the end of the film, Walter goes on to start his own publishing company with his first-selling book titled Elf, which recounts Buddy's adventures. Buddy and Jovi end up getting married, have a daughter, and pay frequent visits to Papa Elf in the North Pole. It's a happy ending indeed. Now, not every depiction of elves is as happy and lighthearted as Hermie and Buddy and your other classic Christmas helpers. If you simply Google something like scary elves, tons of pictures come up of Christmas elves who are bloodied with black holes for eyes and demented expressions on their faces. Interestingly, I also found an entire subculture of forum threads and YouTube videos of people claiming they witnessed their child's elf-on-the-shelf doll moving completely on its own. The Elf on the Shelf tradition started back in 2005 when the book titled The Elf on the Shelf, A Christmas Tradition was published along with a special box with a small scout elf inside. The scout elf is said to watch us during the day, report to Santa at night, and in the morning, before the kids wake up, the elf flies back from the North Pole and lands on a different spot in the house, according to CNBC. Although the elf on the shelf is sometimes shown getting into messes in the cookie jar, toilet, or even cracking open an alcoholic beverage, the creator says the elf is not meant to be mischievous. It is said that if the elf is touched by a human child, it will lose its magic, so it's important that the child it is assigned to maintains his or her distance. While I suppose the idea of an elf coming down from the North Pole all day to keep track of a child and then report his or her wrongdoings to Santa could seem a tad creepy, it really isn't any different than the premise of Santa Claus himself. As the song goes, he knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. 
Some older European depictions of elves can make them seem a tad scary. Many illustrations show them with long pointed noses and a disgruntled expression on their face. They are sometimes hunched and wear tattered looking clothes. While they are sometimes shown as childlike creatures, there are also many variations that lead us to believe they had more of a creepy old witch or wizard vibe. Also, some tales say that elves could become easily agitated and even hostile if offended. But regardless of whether we are talking about the happy-go-lucky, helpful elves we typically think of at Christmas time, or the more rotten, dark ones that have made their way onto the scene, there is no denying that Christmas as we know it simply wouldn't exist without these magical beings. If you have any interesting Christmas-related stories or unique fun facts you'd like me to share in an episode this season, feel free to send them to me. Email Kristen at HolidaysAfterDark.com, direct message at Holidays Podcast on Instagram or Twitter, or find Holidays After Dark on Facebook. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss your dose of holiday darkness. A rate or review would also be greatly appreciated. Thank you to my sister Ashley for editing and producing the podcast. Today I will leave you with some lyrics from the song Cheer for the Elves by Gwen Stefani. Let's give a cheer for the elves, they do like nobody else, working all day and all night to make your wish come alive. Making dolls, making trains, making model airplanes, helping Santa with a smile on their face. Let's give a cheer for the elves. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. In today's challenging world, it's very easy to start feeling depressed, stressed, anxious, or overwhelmed. If you're experiencing any of these feelings, BetterHelp is here for you. They offer licensed therapists who are trained to listen and help you. You can talk to your therapist in a private, online environment at your convenience. There is a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's 20,000-plus therapist network that gives you access to help that may not be available in your area. You just fill out a questionnaire to help assess your specific needs, and then you're matched with a therapist in as little as 48 hours. You can also request a new therapist at no additional charge at any time. Join the 3 million-plus people who have taken charge of their mental health with an experienced BetterHelp therapist. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash Holidays After Dark. That's BetterHelp.com slash Holidays After Dark.